Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris Ryan, your host. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, This is going to be a really good one. This is a conversation I had with the great, the wonderful, the beautiful, the the honey-voiced Carsey Blanton, who sings the theme song for this uh, podcast. Um, anyway, she just dropped by. She's in Portland doing a, on a concert tour. So she dropped by this afternoon. We had a, a nice long conversation about everything from creative process, the difference between being a writer and a songwriter, a performer, different, um, you know, sexuality and how our sexuality plays out when you're on stage, all sorts of interesting stuff. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I trust you will, too. So before we get into that, though, there's some news I want to let you know about. First of all, I'm switching over to um, a new um, podcast hosting service. And one of the the advantages to this service is they, uh, they're they all set up to handle um, Apps. They develop an uh, app for the Android and for the iPhone. So I uh, I paid my money and I uh, gave them the, the various graphics and information and stuff. So within a couple of weeks, we should have an app. I think it's free on Android and costs like two bucks on iPhone uh, only because uh, the iTunes store demands that the minimum price is one ninety nine or something like that. It it might be two ninety nine. I think it was one ninety nine though. Anyhow, so uh, for a couple of bucks, you can get the app on your iPhone, and that will uh, presumably make listening to this as easy as touching a button. So if you're a fan of this podcast, I really appreciate your support, and I hope you'll get the app once it's available. In the meantime, um, for current uh, people who listen to the podcast currently, none of this will really matter, but uh, I'm setting the the system up as the, the folks at uh, Libsyn, this, um, this hosting service I'm using, suggest that uh, what I do is I make the last 20, the most tw- the most 20 most recent episodes are free, and then the archives, you have to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, to get access to the archives. So there it's pretty cheap. It's um like th- I think it's 3 bucks for a month and 6 bucks for 3 months and uh 20 bucks for a year something like that. Um so it's uh it's quite cheap and if you do subscribe to the podcast, you will automatically be subscribed for the talking out my ass episodes as well, uh which you know the the idea was to make those behind a paywall. So so those won't be part of the normal podcast download. Um, so if you don't want to hear my me talking about my travel stories and all that, and you just like the uh, the conversations with guests, then nothing will change for you. Just keep uh, you know keep downloading, and and you don't have to pay anything, and and everything's cool. All right. Now, uh, in addition to that, the this episode is brought to you by Audible, Squarespace, and My Package. Um, before I get into the pitch, I also want to say I'm standing at my new, beautiful, up-down, stand-up, sit-down desk uh, that was given to me by Ergo Depot. E-R-G-O, Depot, D-E-P-O-T. They've got a showroom here in Portland, another one in San Francisco, and they ship all over the country. So definitely check them out. This is a really cool desk. I was talking to a friend last night who works at Nike, 
Um, I asked him if they have these kind of desks. And he said, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, this is the thing. You just turn the crank and, you know, crank it up and crank it down. I said, no, man, this has got an electric motor in it. You just press a button and the desk goes to a pre-programmed height that you, you program it in yourself. There are four different settings. So I've got like the fully standing setting. I've got the sort of sitting on a stool setting. I've got the uh, sitting down on my chair setting, but kind of high up. And then I've got the lowest setting when Cassie and I are watching TV or eating some food off the desk or whatever. Um, so it's, it's a fantastic, uh, device. I definitely check them out. Um, Ergo Depot. You may have noticed I sort of gave up on, uh, shouting out to various people who send me emails and stuff every week. Um, I know that gets sort of tiresome for, <laughs> for people like, Hey, thanks to, you know, Larry and Michigan and you know, who cares? Um, but I do appreciate all your emails. I don't want to bore you by talking about them too much, but I got one this week that that really blew my mind. A guy named Mitch climbed Mount Hood, and he took a copy of our book with him and took a shot of himself sitting on the standing on the top of Mount Hood, reading Sexaton. So, Mitch, here's to your brother. That uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, I will never climb Mount Hood. Uh, that is a cold snow-covered volcano if you're in the portland area you've seen it hovering there it's amazing to me that somebody could walk up the side of that thing and even more amazing that they would think to take a copy of our book uh in order to send us a, a photograph so much love to you mitch i uh, really appreciate that it's a beautiful gesture on to this week's sponsors, my package, M-Y-P-A-K-A-G-E, amazing underwear. I'm wearing some right now. Hear how my voice isn't high and tight and uh, constricted? Neither are my balls. Maybe that's more information than you re- really needed. But in any case, my package brings you the best and most comfortable underwear experience for men. Stay cool and dry this summer with their patented comfort technology. Combined with their super moisture absorbent and breathable material, uh, my package was generous enough to send me a couple boxes, a couple pairs. They're made of really nice material. Um, everything I hate about underwear, and there's a lot, uh, this company has figured it out. It's great. It's just, it's like, I don't know. Have you ever felt like, you know, you sort of want a jock strap? You just want like something that would like hold your package front and center, not, not tucked down to the right, tucked down to the left, you know, bunching up and getting all uncomfortable and all that. This stuff is great. It's, it's underwear that's made around the body. It's made to fit your body perfectly. So, um, definitely if you're not happy with your underwear, if you feel like you want some underwear and you're not sure what to get, check this stuff out. Mypackage.com. If you enter sex at checkout, you get a chance for an extra pair for yourself or someone you love. S-E-X at checkout. Sweet. This episode is also brought to you by Audible.com. They are great. They give you a free audiobook download uh, with a 30-day trial. It's absolutely free, and I'll give you some behind-the-scenes information here. What happens is if you go to audible.com and sign up for your free 30-day trial and download your free book and listen to it and then decide, well, yeah, it's cool, but it's not really for me, and then cancel it, you pay nothing, but we get to keep the 25 bucks audible.com sends us. So 
even if you don't sign up and give them any money, we still get 25 bucks just because you checked it out. So if you're possibly curious um, and want to get a free Audible uh, audio book uh, and you want to support the podcast, that's a pretty cool way to do it. Um, ultimately, you don't actually have to spend any money and you're still tipping us 25 bucks. Which is cool. So uh, let's see. the The link is Audible Trial slash no, sorry, audibletrial dot com slash sex at dawn. That's audibletrial dot com slash sex at dawn. Check them out. Um, one of the books that uh, I really enjoy is American Savage by Dan Savage, and what's cool about it is that he narrates it as well. So you get to hear his. A story uh, told in his voice, which is fantastic. Um, By the way, last week I mentioned that uh, I would be in L.A. taping a pilot with Dan, which I did. It was great. I really hope HBO picks up the show. It was was me, a comedian, uh, Ali, Ali, I don't remember her, Ali Wong, and a scientist whose name I don't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter because the episode will never air. Uh, it's like a, a Bill Maher kind of show where Dan's hosting and he's got a panel and we talk about whatever um, is in the news that pertains to sexuality. And, um, you know, it's one of these things where they it was like a very expensive dress rehearsal. So I guess HBO put up the money to film this pilot episode, fly people in to be on the panel and go through the motions as if it were a real thing. Um, but it's not a real thing, but they're going to put it together as if it were. And then, you know, the big cheeses at HBO will sit around in a conference room somewhere and watch it and decide whether or not they want to pay for a season. So I hope they do because Dan is, as you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Dan. I think he's brilliant and ballsy and funny, and he's just the full package. He's a wonderful guy. So if you want to check out Dan, if maybe you don't know him or you haven't heard him or you don't listen to his podcast, his last book, American Savage, is pretty amazing. He reads it, and you can get it for free at audible.com. And lastly, but not leastly, Squarespace. This uh, podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, which is the premier, super cool, excellent, do-it-yourself website design service. It's cheap, it's wonderful, and very slick. Um, You will not, you would have to pay thousands of dollars uh, to someone to design a website that would even approach the aesthetic appeal and functionality uh, that comes built into your Squarespace site. You basically pick your template, enter your information, and you can drag and drop uh, windows around. You can sell stuff from the space. They'll uh, process credit cards. Uh, It's um, as, as low effort, as little effort as you can imagine. It's 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 like setting up an email account. If you can set up an email account, uh, you can set up a web page on Squarespace. You get a 30-day free trial, I think. might be 14. Not sure. But it, you definitely get plenty of time to check it out for free, see what you think. You can you know put in your name and your images and all that. And then if you decide, nah, I don't really want it, don't like it, whatever, fine. No problem. No money. No, no, no regrets. 
Um, if you do like it, it's cheap. It's like nine bucks a month or something. And you get uh, 10% off if you enter uh, sex, S-E-X, at checkout. You get 10% off. And that'll tell them that their um, advertising through this podcast is going somewhere. People are responding. So that'll make them happy, which makes me happy, which makes the whole world seem happy, even if it really isn't. Uh, in addition to hanging out with Dan Savage, oh, by the way, the surreal moment in my life after the, the taping, um, Dan and I were chatting with people in the audience and my parents came, my sister was there, my aunt, some friends, um, were all in the audience. And, uh, turns out Ron Jeremy was in the audience. I think Bill Maher was there too, but I didn't see him. I think he took off before we finished. He's one of the exec- executive producers of the show. Um, but in any case, um, yeah, Ron Jeremy was there. Now, if you don't know who Ron Jeremy is, you could Google him. Uh, he's famous for having the biggest dick in the world, probably, certainly in the porn world. There might be some guy, you know, walking around with a secret he doesn't want to tell anyone. There are probably lots of guys like that, actually. But anyway, Ron Jeremy is famous for his schlong. And so I found myself saying, uh, Mom, this is Ron Jeremy, which is not a sentence I ever imagined hearing myself say. But life's full of surprises, I guess. Um, So anyway, Mom now has met Ron Jeremy. I don't think she knows who he is, <laughs> but she knows he's that nice man named Ron. Um, okay, what else happened this week? Oh, I, I recorded a podcast with Duncan when I was in LA, went over to his place, had a great time with him. Uh, he's already posted it, so if you'd like to hear that, just go to um, Duncan Trussell Family Hour and you can hear our conversation about love and happiness and how by trying to protect ourselves from pain, we cut ourselves off from the very things that we're so desperately in need of, uh, which is a recurring theme, I think, in Duncan's life and in mine. And then I came back up to uh, Portland, and uh, first day I was up here, I went out with a fire crew. I spent the morning with a fire crew, a friend of mine's a lieutenant, and he invited me to to come along and meet some of the guys and, and hang out and go out on some calls with them, which was wonderful. Really nice guys. Uh, we went and played some soccer, which is the most movement and falling and rolling around that I've done in a decade probably. So three days later, my body is still aching from it. Um, but it was wonderful. And... Um, you know, as you might expect, the kind of guy that uh, devotes his life to being a fireman is an interesting guy. He's not a, um, you know, these are guys who who have a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? I, I guess sincerity. They seem like sincere people. There's a lot of, you know, ribbing each other, a lot of that sort of, you know, male. When guys get together, they give each other shit kind of stuff, which is, you know, for me, it's very comforting because uh, in the Irish culture, the Irish-American culture in which I was raised, that's a way of showing affection. When when you feel free about giving somebody shit, that indicates that you trust them and you know they trust you and there's no uh, nasty intent there. Um, 
some people who weren't raised in that sort of tradition don't get it. And, uh, you know, I've seen it in my life where I'll give somebody shit in, in a, what I think is a friendly way. And I see by the look on their face that they, they just think I'm giving them shit and they don't understand like why I'm being hostile suddenly. And I, you know, it's one of those cultural things. So you have to watch out for that. But anyway, these, these, uh, firemen, they're, uh, it's great. They're really cool, really nice people. And, um, and you know you can see how it's necessary to have a, a an intact sense of humor when you know at any moment your buzzer goes off and you're rushing off to the scene of a horrible car accident or um someone's you know kid just swallowed poison and is dying and you know the mother screaming and you know who you don't know what kind of nightmare you're going to step into at any moment. And um, that's a hell of a job. You know, that's, uh, you know, we're all on the edge, but those guys choose to spend their careers on that, dancing on that edge and um, knowing that they're going to go over, uh, you know, several times a week, at least they're going to be seeing some some pretty uh, difficult stuff. So uh, I've got a lot of uh, admiration for those guys. So anyway, thank you, uh, uh, Justin, and all the guys at the fire crew for letting me tag along and feel like a fireman there for a couple hours. That was a lot of fun. And finally, I just want to say, after I recorded the first part of this intro, Cassie and I went to hear Carsey Blanton play last night here in Portland. And... um, I just want to really, not only because she's so cool and, and, you know, just basically gave me the right to use her her beautiful song um, for the theme song in this podcast, but she's a really special person. And um, as you'll hear when you listen to our conversation today, and, and if you enjoy it, make sure you go back in the archives and listen to the first one we had about a year ago. Um, cause that was pretty amazing too. She, she sings one song today, which, which blew my mind. And, um, she sang two songs in the first episode, but my point was that, you know, sometimes you'll, I'm not a big fan of live music because often, you know, I'll go to a concert or something, especially a big concert, Red Hot Chili Peppers or the Rolling Stones or whatever, it's a stadium. It's, you know, they're like idiots puking all over the place. It's it's never been my scene. Even when I was, you know, that age, you know, a young guy, I went to the Who and Stones. And, and it just always seemed more trouble than it was worth. You could take that money and, you know, buy their entire collection and sit at home and listen with headphones and get a deeper intimacy with the music than you get by being in a stadium. But anyway, that's just me being a curmudgeon. But sometimes you'll hear a live, you'll be there sharing the space with the musician. And there's a moment that comes very rarely when you feel the emotion flood the room. It's like, it's like a a leak in the space time continuum, a tear opens and it comes through that performer and there's, just this, it's like all the oxygen just is gone from the room. And suddenly you're all sharing this desperation or your heart is filled to bursting. 
there's some shared frenzy of emotion that can happen. And it can happen with, you know, a Mahler symphony. It happened one time, Cassie and I went to hear David Byrne um, play in Barcelona. And it happened that night. It was, he, yeah, there's, there's a particular moment in a particular song where he just, it's a, it's a song he did with, um, Selena, actually, the Norteño singer who was killed by her personal assistant. Um, I think it's called God's Child. It's a beautiful song. And there's a moment where he just kind of, there's just a raw, primal scream. And in the intro to the song, he talked about how he'd done it with her and then she'd been killed shortly thereafter and so on. And so when he got to that scream, there was just this feeling of like, holy fuck, man, this is so real. And this performer is transmitting the reality of this with his entire being. It's amazing. Anyway, um, the song that Carsey does on the song on the podcast today, she performed last night in this, this little church in Portland where she was playing, and I felt it. I felt like time stopped, and she connected everyone in the room with something beyond normal reality. And uh, that's, to me, that's an artist, someone who can do that, someone who gives it up and just disappears into the music. Um, And she does that. So really, I'm not saying this because she's a friend. I'm not saying this because she's, uh, you know, a friend of the podcast or a friend of me. I'm saying this because it, she provides an opportunity to experience something truly amazing. So she is leaving. She's in uh, Seattle, um, but you won't hear this. So she after she's going to Minneapolis, Madison, Wisconsin, Clark's Grove, Minnesota, Chicago, Cleveland, Williamsport, PA, which is pretty much where I was born, Bloomsburg, PA, Pelham, New York, New York City. She's got a bunch of dates in New York City in mid-July. Then Aurora, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Cambridge, Mass., Ardmore, PA, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and then she heads to uh, Australia. She's got a show in Melbourne, a show in Sydney, and a show in Canberra in early August. So if you're in any of those places or you're going to be in uh, July or August in Australia, Really, do yourself a favor and check her out and and tell her you listen to the podcast. Uh, she always hangs out after the show and is, is happy to, to chat with people. That's it. Let's move on. Uh, enjoy this. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Carsey Blanton. And as always, thanks to her and thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. You can get them at chrisryanphd.com or shoredesignt-shirts.com. They are the coolest. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Alright, I am here in my beautiful Portland office with the great Carsey Blanton, who has taken a break from her world tour. How long have you been on the road? 
We've been on the road for about two and a half weeks, and we have uh, another four to go. And you're doing, it's a van tour. It is a van tour. And so how many of you in the van? Right now, there's four, there's three in the band, plus we have an extra guest with us just for fun. One Rody? of my good friends. Nope, just a friend. John a friend Waters, and her little dog. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Do you yeah. hear about that? When no. The, there's some somebody in a band, I don't remember the name of the band, they're driving around, uh, going to a gig somewhere. And, you know, like you guys, they were going town to town. And I don't remember where they were, somewhere in the Midwest. And they're getting on the highway, and they passed a hitchhiker standing on the ramp. And one of the people in the band was like, that's John Waters. What? I'm like, what? That's exactly what they said. So what? So they circled around. And like, yeah, that's definitely John Waters. They pulled over and picked him up. What was he it doing? It was John Waters. He was hitchhiking across the U.S., uh-huh. And then he wrote a book about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, crazy. So the first <laughs> I heard was, was that. And then and he, it turned out to be a great thing because now he's, like, on the Daily Show. And yeah. talking about this book. And he always talks about the band. Nice. You know? so it's good, good publicity. publicity. Pick up hitchhikers. Yeah. Well, if you see anyone famous hitchhiking, make Pick sure you them pull up. over. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're famous for being a serial killer. Yeah, Charles Manson. <laughs> That's totally Charles Manson. Pull over. Yeah, pick him up. Why not? <laughs> you know, how many people did Charles Manson kill? I don't know. None. He never killed anyone. Charles really? Manson, yeah. Charles Manson is in trouble because he supposedly convinced other people to kill people. Right. But as far as I know, he himself was never charged with murder. Wow. These girls that he picked up in his van. Oh, this is turning into a van episode. Oh, boy. A van within a van within a van. Yeah, what he did in the whole, you know, swinging 60s, he cruised around San Francisco in this van looking for uh, girls who had just arrived and were had no idea what was going on. And, you know, yeah. which there were a lot of in those days, right? A lot mm-hmm. of girls... You know, fuck you, Dad, and right. like, take off and hitchhike to San Francisco. So he would pick them up and give them a place to stay, and um, then indoctrinate them into his crazy okay cult. Wow! Largely through sex. Apparently, he was like a real hell of a lover. Really? And well, he, he just... sex is evil. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> It's yeah. the tool of the devil. It's true. That's what yeah. I'm here to talk about today. No, I think that's why he's in prison <laughs> all these years later. One of those... One of Because he was a sex, you know... <sighs> it's he, so boring. He, I'm just... I'm bored by the whole thing at this uh, point. Charles Manson? No, the whole sex is dirty and dangerous and it's the work of the devil thing. Like, oh, I was mad and now I'm just bored. I'm just over it. Probably not as bored as you are. No, I think I think that is that describes the trajectory of my life too. Mm. Like I, you know, I used to be mad. You were an angry young man, like, but sex yeah. is great and it's wonderful, and everyone should know that. Everyone, listen to me. And then you got jaded and embittered at some point. And now you're like, I guess well, I, I probably got laid. <laughs> you calmed down a little bit. <laughs> <That's> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, most people are stupid and uh, they think sex is evil. Oh well. Yeah. What are you gonna do? <laughs> It's true. I mean, at least we're having more fun than they are. That's always my solace, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a weird <laughs> thing, though, isn't it? I mean, I don't know to what extent, you know, how far this stain spreads into the rest of your life. But I definitely feel like I'm having a really good time on a on a ship that's sinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can hear the screams of the people who have already gone under. Yeah. Um, 
But like, hey, it's really it's great in my suite. Just playing music on the Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that way somewhat. And and it's pretty hard to calculate how long it's gonna take for the ship to actually sink, and so I think at some point I kinda gave up on it and thought, Well, you know, it's gonna be a better life lived if it lasts a hundred years or if it lasts another five to be doing what I love and making a party out of it. Right. Without being insensitive to the fact or without like being in denial about the fact that, you know, you can see it, the shit is in fact hitting the fan. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think so. I mean, although (laughs) I own real estate in New Orleans now, so maybe I am in denial. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Last time you and I spoke in Brooklyn, you were, what, flying from Boston, stopped in New York. Remember the planes were flying over yeah. as we were talking, mm-hmm. and then you were on your way to New Orleans, I think, to, move to close there. the deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So my husband and I bought a house and renovated it, and now we're renting out some of the apartments. There's these huge houses in New Orleans for mm. insanely cheap, and it's a really cool place. So that's what kind of brought us there. Yeah. So we bought one, renovated it, rented it out, and now with the help of some family, we're buying. We bought another one, renovating a second house now. So I'm aiming You're to be a slumlord. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Always wanted to be a slumlord. It's only been like two years, right? Mm-hmm. And you're taking over the barrio. Yep. It's mostly oh. mostly John. He's the brains behind the operation. Your husband. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised you don't say husband the way Dan Savage. My husband. I actually preferred it when we were just engaged because I called him my Beyonce. <laughs> This is my Beyonce. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, <laughs> that was a fun night in New York. We I remember we had we did our podcast, mm-hmm. and then we went to that event I did with Dan, yep. the Brooklyn uh, Book Festival, and we were, it was in a big church. Yep. I spoke first. It was me, Dan, and like a, a, a madam. Yeah. The madam who had like sent the woman to Elliot Spitzer's yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Who Famous had run madam. for governor or something, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And then the guy who wrote a book about how lonely everybody is. Right. Uh, I don't remember. Or no, he, a book about um, how being single is great. Living alone is the new not living alone. Oh, is that what I it was? I think he was that guy. Oh, okay. How being lonely is great. <laughs> we love being lonely. <laughs> Let's get together and talk about yeah. how great it is. But you know lonely. what the best... Well, there were a few highlights. So after yeah. that, then we all went to a bear bar a bear with bar Dan. And, and then Andrew we went Sullivan. and got pizza and Andrew Sullivan. Yeah. That remember, was a pretty good night. I just told us... That, <laughs> just a few days ago, I was on Duncan Trussell's podcast, and I heard myself telling a story about uh, going to the bathroom mm-hmm. with Andrew and Dan in the bear bar. <laughs> and I'm standing between the two of them at a urinal, right? Where all we got are... And I just remember saying, like, this is such a lost opportunity, <laughs> you know? Like, how many gay guys would love yeah, to be here? Yeah, like, wasted on you. Yeah, like, it's just <laughs> squandered, a squandered pissing situation. Wow. But you know what was the other highlight pizza. of that day? What's that? Was we were walking in Brooklyn on the way to for you guys to talk. Uh-huh. I'm, you know, this little singer-songwriter. I'm like, oh, I'm hanging out with famous authors and Dan Savage is my idol. And I'm all excited. And Dan starts talking about how he can't walk around in Brooklyn because somebody's going to recognize him. And mm-hmm. literally three seconds later, somebody goes, Carsey Blanton! <laughs> that was the highlight of my whole year. That was a plan. I was like, oh, yes, lovely to see you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of my public. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Excellent. your parole officer, was it? <laughs> 
Uh, we're drinking tea here. It's yummy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the night Dan taught me how to pee in public properly. Oh. You hear all those peas? Pee in public properly. <laughs> Got to put the pee guard on the, on the <laughs> microphone. Um, yeah. I think you had already... I think, split? I think you split after the pizza, mm-hmm. right? I did. So we were walking back to the hotel and... Remember, we really needed to pee, and then we went to that pizza place, that mm-hmm. two boots, and they didn't have a bathroom, yeah. but then it was too late, so we just ate the pizza. So yep. then you took off, <laughs> and we were going, going, and we walked down some street, it was kind of dark, and Dan said, oh, yeah, that's, that's you know, I got to piss on this tree, and I, and I was thinking, you know, you get arrested for peeing in public right. in America, not in Spain, but in America, <laughs> and the, the worst, you know, all Dan needs is like a conviction of indecent right. exposure on his great. record. Yeah. That'd be great. So I, I was like, no, I don't think it's a good idea, man. And he's like, ah, come on, relax. So, <laughs> so he went and peed against some wall, and I went, I was peeing against a tree or something. <laughs> and um, then he comes over, and I'm still peeing, and he says, you're doing it all wrong. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, first of all, I, w- I had my phone, and I was looking down at my phone, pretending I was looking at my messages. Yeah. And he said, first of all, Hold your phone up, up at eye level to uh, misdirect, right? Redirect, exactly. Yeah. You're you're trying to get attention <laughs> away from your groinal right. area. And the second thing is, he said, you you straight boys, you're, all your you know your locked hips, you got to sway while you pee, uh, so then it doesn't all hit the cool. same spot and right. make that splashing sound. <laughs> like oh, what is this peeing? Learn to move your hips, thing. straight boy. Yeah, nice. Exactly. That's Not great. the first time. So, That's great. Anyway. There's a whole YouTube video dedicated to how to pee in public, by the way. Really? It's pretty funny. Yeah, I think there, there's a rolled up newspaper trick. Oh, I saw that. You seen one. that? The guy in Brooklyn, like. Yeah, yeah he yeah, uses yeah, the newspaper and he just is peeing off right. to the side through or this rolled up newspaper. pretending he's looking under the car. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm just checking my uh, you know, transmission <laughs> and he's pissing in the gutter, right? Yeah. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, that, that's funny. Take note. That guy's got a few videos. Does he? Yeah. I don't, there's a woman's one too. There's a one for how women should pee in public. Really, I yeah. would love to know that because yeah. our options are clearly limited. They are. They are limited. Poor women. Ah, <laughs> oh, being a woman. Poor. Uh. So, do you like being called a woman, a lady? Uh, I mean, are you a lady? Do you... I'm not really a lady. No, ladies are not weird much word. of a lady. I feel like you have to be proper and yeah, like polite ladylike. and bullshit yeah. like that. Right. And old. And older. Like, yes. No, like, or at least you have ladies, to seem old. Yeah. No, I'm not a lady. I don't really like being called a girl. I think yeah. woman is the way to go. Yeah. It's the safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> I remember there was a, a group called Women Against Ladies. Wow. Who used to march in various demonstrations with uh-uh. signs. <laughs> I just thought that was cool. Women Against Ladies. Wow. Did they like smell bad and not wear bras and stuff? I think they were, you know, feminists. Right. Rabble rousers. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, I have a term I need to coin. Oh, this is a great thing to do coin. on this podcast. I think you're going to like this. All right. Okay. Let's coin that, baby. So the word is fuckwit, which I know already has sort of a definition, but it's a very vague definition. Like a fuckwit is just some stupid person Shit. you don't like. Shithead. It's a shitty person. Yeah. yeah. Here's what a fuckwit should be. <laughs> so you want to recoin. I want to I want to reappropriate this term. All right. A fuckwit should be somebody who 
doesn't get laid enough. And so the the cum has boiled their brains and they're now an idiot. So it's someone who doesn't get fucked enough to be smart. So for example... Well, it's sexist then. So it's, it's no, only no, no, men. No, no, no. It can be well, women. What do you mean the cum? But it's the pretty what, much what all, women's cum all men. Is like backing up into their Okay, brain. okay. Forget the cum. Uh, forget the cum. It's a person who's sexually with, frustrated. <laughs> it's a person whose sexual frustration has scrambled their brain. And furthermore, who often takes it out on people who are having sex because they're mad about it. So here's an example. This happens all the time. There's a guy. He wants to fuck me. I don't want to fuck him, so I don't fuck him. And then it comes out at some point in the future that he's called me a slut. This is pretty... This is pretty common. I've heard other women say this too. Like, oh, I didn't sleep with that guy. Now he's calling me a slut. Which, of course, doesn't make sense. If I was a slut, I would have slept with the guy or would have been more likely to, right? So that is a fuckwit. He's thinking, I wanted to get laid. I didn't get laid. I'm going to be mad at other people who are getting laid, right? Also, like Republican senators who are actually closeted gay guys and they try to pass all this anti-gay legislation, they're fuckwits. They're not getting the sex they want, so they're taking it out on the other people who are getting the sex they want. Or they are getting the sex they want, but they just can't bring themselves to be, uh, you know, to, to be at peace with it. Right? Well, yeah. Like, the, you know, they're fucking gay escorts and snorting meth off their right. you know, abdominals <laughs> or whatever that guy was doing. Yeah, but I still think those guys are not having the sex they want or not enough of it because they're so conflicted about it that what's likely, my guess is, and I don't know a lot of these guys, they're, they're trying to avoid having it for as long as they can. And then they Which explode into so right. They finally get it. And then they explode onto yeah. a gay escort, and there's coke and whatever. They have some kind of like real deviant, you know, evening of sin, and then they go back to their buttoned up right. office in the morning. Do you ever think that the whole concept of sin and shame is is like a way of uh, heightening experience? Hmm. You know, because it, it puts it under such pressure. It creates hmm. this pressure, you know, and then the release is explosive. Right. Whereas if everybody's just doing what they want, you know, if it feels good, do it, man. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, well, I hardly felt it. You know, hmm. it's like eating when you're not hungry. Hmm. You know, like, ah, yeah, no. that was good. No, I don't think I wasn't so. I really hungry. <laughs> no? I think that the I, fact that, you know, when you feel ashamed and secretive about something, it gets more exciting is just like the one almost pleasant byproduct of an otherwise pretty shitty situation yeah and i think most of it is it just makes everything worse and as someone who mostly does what i want most of the time like probably 93 percent of the time i do what i want 93 it's pretty high you're a 93 percenter huh that's good i feel that i enjoy it quite a bit i think i enjoy i think i enjoy sex more now than i did when i was more ashamed of it let's talk about that seven (laughs) percent <laughs> What's left? What do you not do? When well, you feel like it? gosh, you pee in the street probably. I don't pee know. in the street. I mean, there's probably stuff like that, but I don't particularly like. Yeah. It doesn't bother me that I have to wear clothes in public. That's not one yeah. of my things, you know. Especially when you're wearing your tangentially speaking <laughs> t-shirt. <laughs> That's right. As you are right now sporting Look that. At that. Damn. I will proudly walk through the streets of Portland in this shirt. <laughs> uh so that stuff doesn't bother me. Right. I know it bothers other people. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. I think the only the the seven percent is all money stuff at this point. I'd like to be yeah. able to go to Paris for the weekend because well, it's if you stop fun. Buying houses, you could. <laughs> no, the buying houses it, is part of the plan. Wait, this is this is the thing about rich people. You know, they, they 
piss and moan about, the, oh, I don't have any liquidity. You're absolutely right. Yeah, right, because you just bought another yacht. Yeah, it's the two yachts. That's my problem. You got, you got land Sell yachts. a yacht, and then we can, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so stuff like that, I would like to be able to hire the band that I want all the time. And I can't, because they're expensive. They're not even expensive. I'm poor. Rolling Stones. <laughs> Just so if you could assemble your dream band to back you up. I would have not being overshadowed because they're all famous or whatever. Mm-hmm. But just like just pure musical personality. Can they be dead? They can be dead. Okay. Okay. Let's. There's put it two together. bands. I would either have the band that Ray Charles had in 1965. Uh-huh. There's a Ray Charles album called Live in 1965. I think it's at Montreux. That's my favorite band ever recorded really? that I've heard live. Yeah. And who who was in it? Anyway, I don't know, I and I'm going to get in trouble. No, oh, I don't know just, their names. Oh, so you're you're judging it just on the quality of the music? Yeah, that that's the kind of band that I most love, and mm. they sound so cohesive and like they've been playing together forever. Right. And they have so much like yeah. stank on it. Or <laughs> one of there's a <laughs> or there's one of the small combo bands that Billie Holiday had. I don't know the year, but it mm. was like Teddy Wilson and Ed Thigpen on drums, and she had Freddie Green on guitar, and just Is all these in Paris. No, these are all U.S. guys. Yeah. Just one of those great jazz bands. Right. Hmm. That was very good. So what do you? You're on tour now. I'm on tour. I just made a record, yeah. and then I released it just, it. just released a few days ago. Yep, yeah. just a few days ago, and I'm doing a whole tour of the whole country, and then Australia. And what's the name of your record? It's called Not Old, Not New, and it is a jazz record of non-originals. And they still records. They I do. I don't know what to call it, because it, it doesn't yeah. actually exist. It does, actually. It does. I have physical recordings, CDs, CDs and vinyl on this tour. Vinyl? Yep. So it's it's a record again. We've You're come back some around. Vinyl here in Portland, right? You know, I've been selling some. <coughs> I've been surprised. I'll sell a couple every night. So mm. it's not bad. I Does wasn't it have sure. Liner notes and stuff. Yep. Really? It's got an. It's got a poster with the liner notes on the back, and it's pretty fancy. A poster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also have paper dolls with me. I should have brought you one. A paper I'll, I'll bring you one. Yeah. Of you. Of me. Really. In my skivvies, and then you can put a couple different outfits on it. It's pretty great. <laughs> a Carsey doll. Yeah. Wow. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know who Carsey is, she is the person who does the theme music for this song. That's right. I mean, for this podcast. <laughs> uh, Smoke Alarm, one of my favorite songs. That hmm. You talk about an earworm. Yeah. That song is so deep into my brain. Uh, you know, right. It's fantastic. Great. That's what we try to do as yeah. songwriters. Just try to invade your brain. destroy your brain from yeah. the inside. Yeah. I try to remember to thank you uh, on podcasts, but I probably go like a dozen podcasts forgetting. <laughs> well, you know, people remember. find me. Like I get every couple of days yeah. somebody will buy a CD or come to a show and say they heard, they found yeah. me from the podcast. Well, anytime anyone tweets at me or sends me an email like, hey, who is that? I always make sure yeah. I answer that, you know, thank but you. I, I don't want to bore people. <laughs> No, it's not that I don't want to bore them. It's that I am uh, disorganized. Fuck, mm. fuck wit. <laughs> You're fuck not wit. a fuck wit. No, Come fuck. on. <laughs> the problem with fuck wit is it suggests sense of humor. With the does wit, it? You know? Fuck wit. Dumb wit. I mean, I guess wit used to be intelligence, not sense. Well, of Well, but humor. also fuck wit is used to mean a dumb person already. A fuck wit's a person who's just ugh, yeah, like can't do anything. Is yeah. uh, incompetent and stupid. I like shit for brains. Shit for brains. All That's one a word. Very descriptive physical. F E R. 
It's always for <laughs> rains, right? For raining. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I do you ever? I mean, are you one of those people who can remember insults or you know, like elaborate shit? You know, not particularly. We were just yeah. were going around the table telling jokes last night, and I, I only have a couple that have stuck with me for so long. Yeah, and they're all short. Are, are they like the first jokes you ever heard? Or? I think they're the first jokes that I really liked. Yeah. And they, and they that, stuck with me. Yeah, me too. And they're like, from uh, like fourth grade. No, uh, mine are not. Mine are like my first jokes that I heard when I was kind of an adult. That oh, stuck with well, me. that's better. Because mine are, I mean, I remember these jokes literally from third or fourth grade. Like, what's brown and sticky? Mm, I don't know. A stick. Oh, <laughs> that's a fourth grade joke. What, what's but green here, and sings? What Elvis Parsley? Oh, or or got a backup Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Frank Sinatra, <laughs> I mean, that's great. The, the, you know, though, I've got like a dozen of those, right? Right, right and right. they're occupying twelve of my fifteen <laughs> joke slots in my memory, yeah. and I can't, you can't, I can't take free them, out. them up. Yeah. So I only really remember three, I think, adult jokes. Oh yeah, tell yeah. me one of them. <laughs> um. All right. Well, here's, here's uh, this is my favorite joke. It's um, an anthropology joke. Great. So three anthropologists are in the in the Amazon, and they get captured by a tribe of um, native people who take them back to the their village. Mm-hmm. And they, one of the anthropologists is Japanese, the other's French, and the third is from New York. Mm-hmm. And so they take them back to the village, and they say, "Listen, uh, our gods told us that we have to build a big white canoe." So that's why we captured you. We're going to skin you and make this canoe. And uh, But you can choose how, how to die. Mm-hmm. So the Japanese guy finds a sword and does the hirikiri, mm-hmm. you know, suicide thing. And the uh, French guy finds a pistol and says, Viva la France, and shoots himself in the head. Mm-hmm. And the, the New Yorker's looking around, and finally he finds this stubby, short little knife. And he starts stabbing himself in his arms and his chest and his neck. And, and the people are horrified. They say, it's going to take hours for you to die. You're suffering so much. And he says, yeah, well, fuck you and your canoe. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I like so that one. There's that and, you know, the how did Germany invade Poland? How? Marched in backwards and said they were leaving. <laughs> See, that's third grade. And at the time, I didn't even know what Germany and Poland <laughs> right, were, right? right? And these are jokes that came from like my friend's grandfather's yeah, probably who had really been in the funny war. To him. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so <laughs> weird. All right, you tell me a joke. Okay, what's worse than biting into an apple, finding a worm in it? The Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's true, though. It's true, though. <laughs> Sad but true. That's a little joke about jokes. What's funny about that joke is you're racking your brain. Worse than biting an apple, funny worm in it. Gosh. Just yeah. can't think what of what would be, be worse than that. <laughs> yeah, it's like a phase shift. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> so right. uh, tell me about your creative process. You're assuming I have a creative process. <laughs> well, you were telling me that you are gonna you're gonna get into a routine to work oh, on this book and yeah. So routine, exercise, all that is important to your writing process? Uh, well, this is only my second book, right? Mm-hmm. So my process, whatever that is, is a work in progress like everything else. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, 
you know, when I was living in Spain, when I was working on Sex at Dawn, I played basketball three days a week with these guys at a gym near me, and it was always the same guys, mm-hmm. and it was fun because there was a community, and you'd see everybody, and and sort of in the process, stay in shape, you mm-hmm. know? And um, and then when we left Spain a couple of years ago, we've been moving, moving, moving all around. I could never, you know, I could never, like get into any routine mm-hmm. like working out or playing basketball or doing yoga or whatever because then I'd be gone and traveling and all this and so you know I probably gained 15 or 20 pounds and I feel like shit mm. and I'm low energy and I'm not sleeping that well and, yeah you know so in order to to get this sort of work done um, in a way that's healthy and pleasant I think it's important for me that there's that I'm not just sitting in a room for 15 hours, you know, stressed out, drinking too much coffee and yeah. writing. I, I want it to be like, okay, I get up in the morning, I work three or four hours, then I go do other stuff, yep. and there's balance, yeah. you know. You because lifestyle. if you're healthy, you've got energy. Yeah. Especially, my, I'm 52, right? So if, if I'm not taking care of myself now, it can start, things can start going wrong pretty right. quickly. Right, So. Hmm. Plus, I've got a wife who's a doctor who gives me a bunch of shit. On, you know, <laughs> you're getting fat. I don't want a fat husband. <laughs> wow. Oh yeah. That's good medical advice. Yeah. Too. Oh, she's full of medical advice. <laughs> you're getting fat. I don't it's want a fat husband. Free. Yeah. Well, divorce me. The doctor said so. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Now, as far as my creative process goes, which sounds so you know sort of self-important and silly to me but um, i love talking about that shit oh do you yeah i do all right (laughs) i i find that at least with writers talking about creative process is very much or very often an avoidance of doing anything Mm. you know like oh i should be working on my stuff but instead i'm going to read another article about how writers work on their stuff you know interesting i feel like that's not as common with musicians because musicians you guys have it much better seriously because there's something we can do when we're not feeling creative you could just you can just, just play, play your guitar yep. you can practice you can do scales you can go to shows play someone else's song yep. you know do, yeah listen to music right it's all work yeah it's all work for you and it's and the the thing that's beautiful about music now i say this as a non-musician but mm-hmm. uh the thing that i envy is the immediacy of the pleasure you get from it yeah. You know, you play guitar because you like it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure at the beginning, when you were learning to make chords, it wasn't so much fun. Yeah. But what's that? Six months? Yeah. Whatever. I never got past that. Yeah. You know, because I have no discipline at all. <laughs> so I never like got over that initial hump where it started to be fun mm-hmm. to play anything. Um, Do you ever get to a point in your write. writing where it gets fun and easy? Um, you yeah, but it's. It's a different kind of fun. Mm-hmm. It's not fun like listening to music that's coming through your fingers. Fun. <laughs> it's fun like... And, and it's also kind of complicated because it's fun that can involve your ego if you're not careful. Yeah. And getting... E- for me, getting ego involved in the process... Kills ruins it. Ruins it. Yep. So... The fun I get, some some writer, I don't remember who it was, said, I hate writing, but I love having written. Oh, yeah. You know? It's common. So I get that. I mean, still, I mean, I haven't read Sex at Dawn in three years, probably, but... But you're glad you wrote it. Well, <laughs> what I was going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely glad I wrote it, paid the rent for three years. But, um, you know, 
if I if I do a reading or something, or I just pick it up at a random page and I read a paragraph. If it's a good paragraph, that gives me pleasure. Yeah, you feel that little warm fuzzy inside. Like, yeah, it's fucking mm-hmm. good. You yeah. Know? Or there's a joke there that I forgot I made, and, and yeah, it made that's you laugh. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So there's definitely pleasure there, but the the problem is it's a potentially dangerous pleasure because then it could be like, oh, I'm a fucking great writer. Yeah. Oh, that's that's me. I did that. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's yeah. there's both for me. I mean, when I when I hear a song that I haven't listened to of mine in a long time, or I remember a song of mine, I get kind of the dual pleasures. One of them is the pure pleasure of the song. You mm. know, I, I write stuff that I like, or I wouldn't write it. <laughs> and so there's the first rush of pleasure, which is like, oh, cool, this is a cool song. I like the way that that melody works, or whatever mm. it is. There's a little discovery in it. And then right. kind of on the tail of that is the like, mm, I'm such a cool writer. I, I wrote this a long time ago, and I was even good then. So you know that's what I mean? why all those fuckheads <laughs> want to fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I feel like that that second bit to me it's later. Mm-hmm. It's like comes on the tail of the pure pleasure of ha- of just having created something. Creating is really fun. Is really fun. And I say that as, you know, I'm a songwriter and I'm a performer of other people's songs and I yeah. I write essays and blogs and all that kind of stuff and and I also like do other, you know, silly cute creative stuff like yeah. you know, painting and whatnot. Paper dolls. Paper dolls. Yeah, and to me there's there's a real deep kind of pure pleasure in just creating something yeah um dancing it's all the same stuff it's like you do something that you haven't seen somebody do before and there's something that i think is just a human sensual enjoyment in that but then there's all kinds of other you know ego stuff that gets wrapped up in it too someone asked cassie about my creative process once and it's one of the early interviews when she was still occasionally doing an interview and she said Oh, uh, Chris writes the way a dog shits. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And she says, yeah, you, you go around in circles. And you, get, <laughs> you get really nervous and go around in circles. And then suddenly he squats and everything just comes out. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so that, that that's what it is. But, I mean, for me, it's like, I'll yeah, I stress about shit and I sort of like go around in circles and then... It sort of takes shape in my brain. Yeah. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night and it'll be like, ah, yep. I've got and I've got the first sentence. Yep. And the first sentence contains everything else yep. within it. Absolutely. So as long as I've got the first sentence, then if I'm in the right state of consciousness, then I can just start there and it'll just go. Yeah. And that's. 85 to 90% done. Yep. So I rarely, I'm not one of those people who writes 40 drafts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I write, I'm, in my head, I guess I'm writing drafts. But mm-hmm. by the time it's out, it's, it's pretty edited. much the way it's going to be. Yep. Yeah, I'm similar. I think that's so fascinating that our brains are structured in such a way that you can secretly be working on a creative project. Secretly to yourself. Because it's all subconscious. Yeah, like I don't know when I'm writing a song. Exactly. That's that's the real to me the real work. Like my creative process is all about distracting and placating my conscious mind so that I don't meddle with whatever's going on in my subconscious. And that's what I was saying earlier about the importance of doing something physical. I think absolutely because that's you're pulling your attention away from it and you're letting. It's like a garden. If you're in there every fucking day watering and weeding, like Meddling, you're yeah. going to step on the shit that's trying to grow, right? <laughs> yep. So you got to like plant it, yep. put some good soil, you know, water it occasionally. And, and go then take a walk. Go do something else. Go yeah. on a vacation. Walk the dog. Yeah. 
Yeah, apparently Paul Simon, his writing process is throwing a baseball against the wall and catching it in a mitt over and over again. Just do that for hours and hours. His throw the ball, catch it. Throw the ball, him. catch it. Well, he's probably got enough money. He doesn't have neighbors yeah. that share a wall. You know, he's living in a <laughs> studio in Greenwich Village. Not anymore. Probably at the time, his neighbors hated him. <laughs> Did you ever hear the, the story about how Graceland came to him? Mm-mm. He was His career was fucked. Mm-hmm. You know, he had released like two or three albums that were just bombs. Yeah. Nobody, it was like, he's over. You know, that was the 60s. and that's I'm done it. now. Kodachrome was great. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, he was, like you, he owned properties all mm-hmm. over the place. <laughs> I guess he was living in Manhattan, but they bought a, he bought a house in Montauk, way out mm-hmm. at the end of Long Island. So he was driving out there every weekend to you know hang out and see what was happening in the house and all that. And um, this is back in the days of cassettes, and somebody had given him a cassette, unlabeled, you know, recorded from somebody's album somewhere. Yeah. And it was and he it was just music, African music, mm-hmm. and he didn't know where it was from and mm-hmm. and. But he really loved it. There were a couple songs that were like, wow, I love the rhythms. I love the way this works. So he asked his assistant to find out what this was, and nobody could figure it out. It it turned into this big, like, search to figure out where this music was from. Turns out it was from South Africa. Right. And he just couldn't get it out of his head. So he got um, some friend of his who I think produced some of his records, and they just bought tickets to To South Africa. To go to South Africa and walk around. And they just showed up. And it wasn't like... (laughs) set up it yeah. wasn't a big thing they just showed up and, and uh, walked around yeah mm-hmm. and um, ended up recording with some people and yeah boom then they took it out took all the tapes home and remixed it in New York and there you there go there it is pretty cool you've seen the movie uh, Searching for Sugar I haven't yet you what He's probably the 10th person who's Are told me that Are you kidding me That's, no I'm not I'm kidding turn this mic sideways let's see does that sound better I don't know. No, no, this is. Too <laughs> Am I too loud? Am I too quiet? No, no, we're good. We're good. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying a new mic, ladies and gentlemen, because people have been complaining that um, uh, the podcast is a little too quiet. Who so cares? I Everybody? care. I'm responding to your concerns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I've just in the past few years, part of moving to New Orleans for me was about prioritizing my creative work above my career nonsense. Um, Because I used to live in Philly, which is a much more logistically smart place to live if you're a touring musician, because you're right in the middle of all these major cities. Mm. New Orleans is not close to anything. But it's a much better musical culture, isn't it? Well, in some ways. It's a very incestuous musical culture. Like, most of the people who live there, they play there. They all play in each other's bands. They all know each other's music. They mostly play traditional jazz music Mm. or modern jazz music, some kind of jazz music. Um and there's a there's some weird interpersonal dynamics and stuff that you get in any kind of small scene that is a bubble. Mm-hmm. There are also musicians who live there and then tour out of there, which is kind of what I've been doing. Like I don't play much when I'm there. I mostly I'm, when I'm there, I want to be writing because that's my creative place. That's why I moved there. That's the whole point mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. Did you consider Nashville? Yeah, but you know, there's a few towns that are really good industry towns, but I just don't. They don't have the juju. Like, mm. what, I want to be somewhere where when I walk around downtown, I get that that funny feeling, you know? That, <laughs> yeah. that there are Jews around? <laughs> no, then I would have stayed in the Northeast. Yeah. The juju feeling, like, oh, there's there's something going on here. There's a vibe. You know what I mean? 
I don't know how to describe it. New Orleans, it's it's so humid all the time. The mm. air is heavy. It smells like flowers and garbage. And, like, there's 300-year-old houses everywhere. And there's all these street performers. And there's all these crazy people who want to talk to you. And mm. it just has a lot going on. I mean, New York is kind of similar, but less so now that it's so expensive. Yeah. San Francisco is a little bit similar. has yeah. a really strong personality. Yeah. You know, I've never been to New Orleans, um, but... Before Cassie and I came here, we were, you know, we were looking at places that were accessible to L.A. but not L.A. And New Orleans was one. Mm-hmm. Austin. Yep. Here. A couple others. But what turned me away from New Orleans was um, the the crime. Yeah. You know, from what I read, it's pretty heavy. Yep. And police corruption, of course. So yep. So we're sort of like... And the you know Cassie being brown skinned, everybody would assume she was you know local, and probably racism isn't that big a deal anymore. But just didn't want to well, deal with that kind of stuff. It's complicated yeah. down there. I mean, race in New Orleans has a really complex and interesting history. Yeah, because they don't just have a couple of races, right? And they you know for hundreds of years there's been there's black people, white people, Creole people, yeah. Cajun people plus Hispanics and Jews and just all kinds of... It's a real melting pot kind of city. they call them Jujus down there. Jujus. Yeah. Jujus. I should know. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, so the crime, you know, it's a bummer, and a lot of people have guns. Um, yeah. There's a lot of domestic violence. There's a lot of drug violence. And we live, like, kind of on the edge of the ghetto. But I don't know. So far, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, I... I like edginess. Yeah. I, I like to feel like it's real, you know? Yeah. Which is one of the things I miss. Being in the first world, I just, I always feel like I'm sort of um, surrounded by uh, packing material. You know what I mean? Like yeah. bubble wrap yeah. is everywhere. Like the like, boy in the bubble. Yeah, you can't. Totally. Uh, Paul Simon. <laughs> Another Paul reference. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's. That is one of the things I like about that town. Like, when I wrote Smoke Alarm, was on a trip to New Orleans, and it was because it has a real consciousness of mortality. Right. In a way that most of America does not. Most of America is really doing its very best to deny the fact that everybody's going to die all the time. You know? You're talking to the guy who's about to write <laughs> Civilized to this, Death. Maybe this sister. will help. Here you go. Yeah, exactly. So, but in New Orleans, you know, there's a lot of elements. Like, there's high crime. There's a lot of people getting shot. And that's right. one element that sort of keeps you conscious of the fact that people are dying. Right. And you will, too. But also, when somebody dies, they have these second line parades. Yeah. Which is literally, you get a brass band together... They go out in the street to have a parade to celebrate the fact that that person was alive. Yeah. And all the neighbors come out of their houses and they dance and the people are crying and people sing. And it just feels much more realistic to me to acknowledge the fact that life is brief and then it's over. And it's just, you know, every couple of days you hear yeah. a brass band, you know what happened. Yeah, right. And everywhere else, what do you hear? You hear a siren. You hear a siren and you, ho- you think, oh, I hope everyone's okay. Uh-huh. And that's it. You hardly ever see old people. You never see dead people. You know, you hardly ever see little kids. It's like, just especially in a lot of the hipper and wealthier parts of America, it feels very insulated from what's actually going on. Well, I'm all in favor of uh, keeping the little kids away. Not a kid person? No. (laughs) Why'd you live in Spain then? That was what struck me in Spain is that the kids are just out. 
all hours of the they're night. Nice kids. They're in the bars. They're nice kids. Now they're playing American monkeys that people are raising <laughs> over here with their peanut allergies and their <laughs> fucking whiny Rolls Royce and goddamn <laughs> carts that they're pushing them around until they're nine years old. Mammy, <laughs> yeah. you fucking little bastard. <laughs> no, I don't. Li- I don't like American kids. I mean, there's some, obviously I like. There's some a couple kids. Well, we don't do a good job. We don't do a good American job. American kids whole. are miserable. American people are miserable, and and that's why. I mean, you know, this is the country where, you know, oh, if your baby's crying, ignore it. Oh, that's good advice. Ignore your crying child. We like to start ignoring our our deepest desires when we're young, as young as possible. (laughs) No, your baby has to learn that life is going to be a sad, shitty, marathon of isolation and despair. (laughs) (laughs) You, your entire life will be spent inside a crib, holding the bars, screaming and crying for someone you think loves you. Yeah, yeah. But you're never really going to be sure from this moment (laughs) on, little girl. Good luck. Yeah. (laughs) Enjoy the smorgasbord. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I imagine you're going to write a bit about our about child rearing Fuck in, yeah. uh, in civilized oh, death. Oh, huh? it's going to be uh, soup to nuts and dykemen yeah. of the modern world, Good. sister. Well, you know, schooling is a big issue as well. I'm sure you've thought about this. Yeah, you know, I didn't go to tra- school well, at I know. all. You're a you're a hippie spawn. Well, you know, I am, but I really. As someone who's a hippie spawn, but not a total hippie, although I am a total hippie, but I like I like to wear nice dresses and deodorant and stuff, so I don't look like a hippie. But uh, <laughs> or smell like one. Do you wear patchouli? I do not. I would never. This, I would never touch the stuff. See, see, I don't I, smoke weed. I never sign on to that. I like patchouli. I don't know. Everyone's all it's bitchy about you're patchouli. A hippie. You are a hippie. I, I'm not a hippie. I mean, the hippies like children, don't they? I, I had a waterbed. I uh, anyway. Anywho. I'm not totally a hippie, but I do think right. school is a horrible, horrible place to put a person of any age. <laughs> do you know your father wanted to go to Burning Man with me? That would have been hilarious. <laughs> I wish Somebody that you had done that. Somebody should have filmed that. I, <laughs> I wish mean, you had done that. You guys still haven't hung out, huh? We still haven't met, no. Carsey's father, for those of you who don't know, Google Brad Blanton, B-L-A-N-T-O-N, and This American Life. That's my favorite You like that episode? I love that. <laughs> you don't love it? I, I don't remember. Uh, I don't keep track of his escapades. No, my dad's Carsey's a great guy. father's a real character, and This American Life profiled him in one of their two TV seasons. Yeah. And when he ran against Eric Cantor, mm-hmm. the now departed finally. Eric Cantor, finally. <laughs> Jesus, talk about Juju. Yeah. yeah, he tried. And your dad got like 25% of the, the vote. The first time he ran, he got 25% of the vote. Because With no party affiliation. Right, because there were no opponents. It was Eric Cantor and, and yeah, my dad, yeah, yeah. who nobody knew who he was. And then the second time around, there was a Democratic candidate, and he got a lot less of the vote. Mm. But, you know, he fought. He really goes for it, my dad. Say yeah. what you will about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a carpe diem approach to He life. really does. He's a great guy. I love my dad. Yeah. But, you know, it, it meant that I had a real colorful childhood. So you never went to school. You got no school. Never schooling. went to school. Didn't go to any kind of school. I went to seventh grade, actually, in public school. Only seventh grade? Yeah, because I was 12 and I wanted to meet boys. And so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
great. It's so like, I went to school, and then the next year, for a husband. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's hard to meet people when you don't go to school and you live in rural Virginia. Yeah, I have to say, like, there's the neighboring farm boys, and that's about it. Yeah. So I went to school for one year, and then I I actually liked school, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to go back because they make you get up so fucking early in the morning. That's, you know what that's for? <laughs> no factory training yeah. you for the factory. I just remember, like, at the end of the school year, my alarm went off at six thirty, and I was just like fuck this and yeah. I still feel that way the yeah. number of times I've gotten up before 8 o'clock are, I can count them on one hand <laughs> I've got a theory I mean I haven't had a, a job since the 90s yeah you know listen early, to us we are such 90s. we are such highfalutin white people in here anyway go on <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not white I'm Irish <laughs> oh that's different I see yeah I'm not white either I'm Jewish are you Jewish yeah full full blooded <laughs> no See? Your mother was Jewish? Yeah. Okay, well then you're Jewish. I count. Yeah. That's how we do it. We heebs. I'm not Jewish. I'm circumcised. But I'm not Jewish. Many non-Jews are in this day and age. In America. It's very confusing. Only in America. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's part of the anti-masturbation campaign Mm -hmm. of the late 19th century. Anyway. (sighs) Which continues to this day. Okay, go on. Uh, What kind of am I talking about? (laughs) Talking about... Oh, oh, my theory. Right. Yeah, I figure getting up at 6.30 in the morning is so painful that it's probably, you'd have to pay me probably about $30,000 a year to wake up. Just to wake up. Just to wake up, get out of bed, take a shower at right. 6.30 in the morning, right? That's thirty grand. Yeah. Then you want me to shave every day? That's twenty five. Yeah. I think this is actually how it's calculated. So now we're up to fifty five grand before I even get to work, right? Yeah. Um, commuting? Yeah. That's got, I mean, that's got to be worth twenty, thirty thousand, 30000 right? So you see where I'm going. It's like, if I do absolutely nothing, yeah. I'm making six figures. Right. Tax-free. Tax-free. Just based on your hatred of all of those activities. Uh, the fact you think that some people are cheaper. I would pay that much to avoid doing those right. things. Therefore, I'm that far ahead of yeah. the game by not having to do that. <laughs> yeah. And it makes the tax situation much yeah. easier to deal with as yeah. well. So. Well, you know what I've been doing lately? This is sort of the flip side of that. Working for yourself is is fun. Yeah. We can, we can agree on that. And going back to the creative process, I decided a couple of years ago that my job, quote unquote my job, includes whatever activities I deem important to my creative process, which include a lot of really good ones. So like reading... Part of my job. We're talking about tax write-offs, or, no. or like your, I'm talking about my personal psychological approach right. to what I do every day. Like hour-long baths. Part of my job. Naps. Got to do it. Oh, Absolutely part of my job. Is essential. Sex. Totally part of my job. Both before and after the nap. <laughs> you got you got to sandwich your nap yep. properly. Yep. Yeah. Traveling. Part of my job. Of course. Because this is the stuff that gets me in the mood that I need to be in to write a song. And writing songs is my job. Like the touring, it's it's sort of a, I consider it peripheral. Making records, I consider it peripheral. I'm a songwriter. That's my thing. That's my work here on earth. So anything that supports that is just part of my job. Hey, are you going to play a song? Oh, hey, speaking of that, sure. You think you're going to get away with just calling yourself a songwriter? I don't have to back that up. Sure, I'm going to need the the no, no arms. Yeah, all right. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are shifting. It probably shouldn't sound any different to the world out to the there. Uh, <clears throat> I'll move the, the mic a little closer. Oh, that sounds good. 
Well, I'm going to play you my newest song. I think you might like. Oh, great. What's it called? It's called To Be Known. And um, so I was saying New Orleans has all this juju. And I go I go walk around the city by myself a lot because I just get I get that funny feeling. And uh, one night, a couple of months ago, I was like a little heartsick about a boy and was feeling a little melancholy. And I was walking around. It was late at night. And it was windy but warm, which is a thing that happens a lot down there. So, like, a wind came up, and I just went, <gasps> and I got this whole song in my head all at one time. Wow. And now, like I said, I'm not a total hippie. I don't really believe in ghosts, but this was the closest, this was the ghostiest thing that's ever happened to me. Spirit of a song just yeah. entered you. I felt like, oh, there's this ghost. She's wandering around the French Quarter. She was waiting for a songwriter to come along. She just dropped it into my head. <laughs> it's better than the dog shitting image. Yeah. <laughs> or you could say it that way. Same thing. A, a spiritual dog shit on your head. Yeah.
That's great. God, I'm almost in tears here. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Well, I'm not thanking you. I'm thanking the spirit, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, and that's, I'm thanking her, too. Yeah. Wow. That's really nice. Mm. You've never known the gravity of grace until it hits you like a stone. Mm. Isn't it all you've ever wanted to be known. So now you're singing this. I, I mean, I love the way that cuts different directions. Mm-hmm. You know, that you've wanted to be known. By the way, that's your T there. You've wanted to be known, but also I want something to be known here. Yeah. You know, something that you want to transmit or to mm-hmm. teach or something. I, like that. I didn't actually Yeah, to me, I mean, having, I don't know if it's like this for you when you write, but for me, I often write something and then I have to decide what it means after it's written. And like, I'll often surprise myself with (laughs) insights that I hadn't actually had yet that I find in what I write. And that gets back to what you were saying earlier, the pleasure of creativity, because so much of it happens outside of the conscious mind that it's, it's, it's like watching yourself dream Mm -hmm. you know you see these images come up it is a lot like dreaming that's the closest thing where you wake up and you have to analyze it yeah what does it all mean i feel that way about most of my songs do you ever have a (laughs) uh an experience in a dream where how can i say this i don't think i've ever tried to say this out out loud before but it's something that i've been increasingly aware of in dreams that that I must be aware that I'm dreaming because things happen in the dream that are so random and surprising that I, at the moment it happens, there's a part of me that says, you can't be creating all this with your mind because you didn't see that coming. You know what I mean? If that came from the same place the rest of this narrative is coming from, then you wouldn't be feeling the way you're feeling right now. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it makes sense in a way that couldn't have been planned. Right. That things fall together in patterns that that seem so intentional. Right. I and, just think it points... I think that that thing in dreams and also in creativity, it, it just it points out the smallness of your conscious mind right and your total lack of understanding and control yeah where we are we're constantly convincing ourselves that we have some understanding and some control and then that's it's one of the many things that reveals your incredible small mindedness <laughs> not of your whole brain but of your conscious mind your conscious mind is just lame and stupid most of the time yeah and if you're lucky your subconscious has some cool shit going on that it might drop on you every once in a while <laughs> Now, you say if you're lucky. Do you think that everybody... This is a question Duncan Trussell and I talked about a couple days ago. um, Whether boring people are actually really interesting. And you know what I mean? Like, do boring people have interesting dreams? Yeah. Or are there people who are just so fucking boring, even their dreams are dull? Yeah. Well, we have so many ways of avoiding the, the unknownness. In our in ourselves, yeah. But I think if you're if that's what you want to do, you can downright do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like whether it's with 
being on drugs or, you know, just having a boring job or trying to stay away from thoughts that are scary to you. Now, so be careful when you say being on thoughts. drugs there, little hippie girl. Okay. Because uh, some drugs bring you into contact with those things. And other drugs help you avoid them. Well, I find the word drugs, drugs as, as annoying as the word, you know, <laughs> niggers or yeah. Jews or, you know, any other like... Then I'm not giving you shit here, but yeah. but you know, as a culture, we're constantly oh, drugs are this, drugs are that. Yeah. Which drugs? Yeah. Which drugs? Because I'll tell you what, a hit of acid is as different from a line of coke as yeah. you know Nigeria is from Staten Island. Yeah. It's like, and to just lump them together as You're drugs totally right. is crazy. You're totally right. You can't even have a conversation. You're totally right. Drugs. Well, my point is your point. All right, I just I just had a little rantlet there. Things. I mean, America is the land of distractions. Yeah. We don't. Uh, <laughs> what is that for me? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just showed Carsey. Uh, there happens to be sitting on my desk right now, Ron Jeremy's business card. Is that really Ron Jeremy? It is. Yeah. That's amazing. I last week introduced Ron Jeremy to my mother. <laughs> How many people? I, I heard myself say, "Mom, this is Ron Jeremy." <laughs> Oh, hi, Mr. Jeremy. Nice oh my to meet God. you. That is amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Life is strange. Anyway, what are we anyway, talking about? Point is, Drugs. I think if you yeah. You can be boring. You can be thoroughly You can boring. pull it off. Yeah. There's yeah. plenty of ways. Do you know in Spanish? Do you speak Spanish? No. That's because you never went to school. I know. Lazy, hippie. lazy hippie spawn. Um, in Spanish, the word for insulate is the same as the word for isolate. So you try to insulate yourself from the dangers and the problems of life and the the pains and the and you end up completely alone. Word. Yeah. Back to the bubble wrap. The American <laughs> yeah, bubble wrap. Totally. Yeah. So now yeah. do you do you see your you said your purpose in life is songwriter. That's like your identity. Yeah. Is is part of that trying to bring attention to the things that you think people are missing? Do you feel a political agenda in your music, or is it... I definitely don't have a political agenda. I think I have a bit of a spiritual agenda. I wouldn't even say an agenda, though. I think that the theme running through my work is about transcending the mundane and sort of being in touch with the larger sense of purpose or sense of presence with what's happening in the world. Um, or or, Or just, you know, honestly acknowledging things that people don't like to honestly acknowledge. It's kind of a, an extension of my dad's work in that way. I think that something happens when you're able to speak the truth in a way that it doesn't get done very often. And right. the thing that happens is everybody suddenly is aware of what what's who where they are and what they're feeling and who they're with. Mm. It brings you into the present moment. Right. And so to me that's what my songwriting is about. It's about giving people some perspe- shift of perspective that lets them go, "Oh shit, I'm alive." Right here. You know, it sort of distracts you from the trillions of mundane bullshit that tasks that we all deal with all the time. Now, you said you've never smoked marijuana. No, I have. Oh, you have? I didn't say that. Didn't say that? I don't smoke pot. Oh, I don't smoke. Okay. I just smoke. Oh, but you have. Right. <laughs> have you done hallucinogens? I have. Okay. Yeah, you sound like somebody who has. Yeah, I have. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I kind of ran the whole gamut for a few years and got all the way early so now I'm pretty much sober pretty much clean and sober Mm -hmm. 
Mm, that's good, I guess. <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sex is my drug of choice. Really? Yeah. That's probably the the safest. <laughs> I think so. Healthiest. Some people argue. Option. I think it's pretty safe. Yeah. When done safely. Yeah. <laughs> so I speaking of that, I was uh, Cassie and I were in a porn movie last week. Really? Not with Ron Jeremy. That was a completely oh, different thing. Totally unrelated. Yeah. Yeah, we um, we were in this uh, porn movie. Anyway, the only reason you reminded me of it is, um, you know, I, I, we played ourselves. Mm-hmm. We had like a cameo. The wow. the the main um, the stars uh, India Summer is her name, and she plays a documentary filmmaker whose relationship is she's having some issues, so she decides to make a documentary about wow. relationships, and so she interviews authors and stuff. Plot. Well, it's the the idea, you know, the ambition of the the producer is to sort of bridge the gap, you know, and make a movie that you're not intellectually ashamed of watching. Right. There's something going on, character development, and all that. Nina Hartley was there. Okay. She plays the char- the mother of the main character. Wow, crazy. Anyway, what did you, you think? Do you like it? Yeah, it was great. It was fun. Um, but you, something you just said reminded me of it. Sex is my drug of choice. Oh, oh, and it being healthy and all that. Um, you know, I did my scenes and then, uh, which were fully clothed. You know, it's me being interviewed. Oh. You know, as an author, essentially. Oh, so you weren't right? having sex in a porn movie. No. Oh, well, that was misleading. Intentionally, <laughs> come on. <laughs> but not inaccurate. See, that's right. the beauty. Okay. That that's. That's how I see my my role in life is to say something where people go what, and then by the time they hear the story, they They're say, like, oh, okay. geez, well, he that they wasn't really bullshit, that. but it's still what, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, I told a story on uh, a podcast recently about having my first sexual experience with a cat, and it left the two people who were on the podcast with me in stunned silence for right. fifteen seconds. Yeah, there was a cat in the room while you were having. Sexual experience? No, no, no. You have to. You have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> oh, <too>. <laughs> <leave me laughs> uh, anyway, what the hell am I? Oh, I so I come come into the kitchen after you know, I went and changed my clothes back to normal clothes, and I come out into the kitchen, and there's uh, the star who I just did the scene with ten minutes before, standing completely naked, um, going over lines with the director. And, you know, I walk in and I, I was sort of like a Jerry Lewis, like, what? You know, I'm almost tripping over my feet. And oh, and she just looked at me. Oh, yeah. Hi. Yeah. Okay. What? Like absolutely zero awareness that she was naked. I bet. That's awesome. Yeah. Doing porn. Yeah. That's one of I guess. And then at lunch, we're talking, you know, they're, they're, you know the crew's there and everything. And, and she was telling a story. Oh, that she was, yeah, she um, was flying out of Vegas. The whole story was about how shitty the food is in the Vegas airport. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, yeah, and I, you know, I, I flew out of there like, you know, Tuesday night or whatever. And I was so hungry because I had been doing, I, I did an anal scene. So I hadn't eaten for, you know, 12 hours. <laughs> and it was, it was like the fact that she was doing an anal scene was just a way of saying that she hadn't eaten right. for a while. Just giving you some backstory. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That. Yeah. It's an interesting world where, like, things that most people are freaked out about are completely devoid of any of that charge. Yeah. Yes. 
So do you think, back to your earlier uh, supposition that being shamey and secretive somehow adds some, some magic, do you think porn stars don't have as exciting sex because they're so lacking in uh, inhibitions and shame about it? Uh, I think a lot of porn stars would probably say yes to that. Yeah. And I can't speak for them, but uh, I... I think that a lot of porn stars don't have a very satisfying sex life mm. privately because all that energy is drained at work. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard because, as you know, a lot of my um, trajectory in life has been trying to... Um, to remove shame right and and especially all this unnecessary shame around sexuality yeah. and and so many other things so yeah i'm only partly serious you know when i make that kind of uh joke about but on the other hand you do th- you know i think about like you know like a priest and a nun who yeah. sneak off into the woods to fuck i yeah. mean Imagine the intensity of yeah. that experience. And I don't think, I mean, you know, the most intense sex of my life is has been when, either when I was young and, like, insanely horny and right. just, you know, from the chemicals. Yeah. Or after a period where I hadn't had sex for a long time. Yeah. So there was extreme hunger accumulated. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, or I was... Well, no, that's wrong. Because I was, I was about to say, or I was doing something for the first time, you know, some group thing or some yeah. unusual thing. But on, if I'm being honest, the group stuff isn't that intense because yeah. you're because you're there with a bunch of people, and it's like it's hard to really get lost in the moment. At yeah. least for me, I've noticed that too. So it's, it's interesting. It's hard to think about later. Well, see, and that's like what we we're saying about writing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the process itself isn't that in, isn't that wild, but it, yeah, it gives you years of like great. Ooh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's it, interesting. It's interesting how things can pay off in different ways. It can be the immediate payoff, or it can be like like playing a concert where yeah. everybody goes crazy, right. or it can be the the like delayed time release payoff, like yeah. publishing a book that people are still reading twenty years later. Yeah. That's funny, too, thinking about porn stars kind of being drained of sexual energy when they get home from work. I feel like, man, so when I'm on tour, I get super horny. And this is not an invitation for you or anyone else listening to this podcast to fuck me after one of my shows. You don't need to say say that. (laughs) I mean, geez, well, I'm not going tonight then. The hell with it. Well, I'm not going then. (laughs) Slut. Exactly. Thank you. We got that out of the way. I get super horny when I'm on tour. Mm. And I think it's because I'm playing a show every night and for me there's a real energetic exchange in playing a show where I'm I feel like I'm drumming up all this energy right and then I'm getting all this other energy from the crowd and I'm trying to like create this energetic experience for everybody to live in together right but then at the end I feel like I just still it's all inside me now I have all this like manic energy and so like after a show I want to like eat a big meal and then I just get I'm just super horny I want to like I have to either run if I'm not a runner. If I was a runner, I would run like 20 miles probably at the end of a show. <laughs> really? Yeah. But it's interesting to me that I feel like sexual energy is something you can sort of store up. And I imagine that porn stars do the opposite of that. They probably don't have time to store very much of it. 
Yeah. I sound like a hippie when I talk about all this also. You think so? <laughs> Storing up sexual energy and then having to slough it off. It seems like a hippie thing to say. But it's true. Well, I don't know how hippie it is. I mean, the, you know, the whole the Taoist... Uh, philosophy is very much about storing and releasing sexual energy and not releasing it at the wrong times or too much and yeah. I, I mean the, all the semen retention stuff right, right, and right. Taoism is a big deal yeah. I mean it sort of plays out funny in Taoism though because the way it ends up is that older men should have lots of sex with younger women but they just should never come the, right. the men the, right. make the women come and come and come so they can store up the so they, they absorb some of the woman's energy because right. she's got plenty right <laughs> and then older women should be having you know it's a whole it's like a MILF philosophy yeah because the young guys are just yeah. you know as I get older I think I'll be more and more down you gonna, you gonna be a MILF are you a pre-MILF <laughs> that's my plan yeah yeah absolutely well how old are you now almost 30 <laughs> you're way too young to be a MILF time. yeah some kids first too i guess yeah well i guess yeah <laughs> you have to be someone's mother don't yeah. you yeah because you're just what an old, <laughs> an old lady yeah <laughs> but no i mean a milf's like 40 right a middle-aged lady i'd like to fuck a mal if <laughs> well i'm waiting for like gilf porn to come you know grandmothers <laughs> Or Gagilf, great grandmothers. <laughs> wow. All right, enough about that. So, what the hell were we talking about? We we were being serious there for a minute about storing up sexual energy. Storing up, yeah. You keep so, bringing this oh, back to sex. It's, there, there's nothing worse than a woman who keeps pulling the conversation back to sex and and says, "By the way, this isn't an invitation." <laughs> Nothing worse. Oh. It's the worst thing I well, could possibly Well, the, the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> Just that and the Holocaust. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think I think performing music is about that. And a lot of people disagree with me on this, so it's probably just one of my quirks. But to me, sexual energy and musical energy and creative energy, mm. they're all the same stuff. Right. It's, it's Eros. It's like the, it's the creative force. It creates babies, creates songs, creates performances. You ever want to like jump out and and uh, surf the audience? What do they call that when the performer jumps <laughs> off the stage? Crowds. Play shows big enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> be like land on their table in the front row, yeah, smash. Right. Yeah, but that that always. I mean, who did that? Who who was famous for doing that kind oh, of stuff? Oh God, I feel like Peter Gabriel probably Peter did it in his Gabriel. crazy days. Yeah, probably. I don't even. But who, I mean, what a, what a thing to do, yeah. you know? I mean, I'd, I'd love to know the story of the first performer who's just that. like, fuck it, and just jumped <laughs> out, you know, and like you land. Because you've done those exercises probably, you know, like on your hippie retreats where you, you know, five or ten people falls. will all yeah. lift it. Or, yeah, you do the trust falling, but then you also like... You know, Let ten people put their fingers going. under and we can all lift you. And, oh, look what yeah. we can do together. Um, so, like, it's not actually dangerous if right. a bunch of people put their hands up. You're not going to break anyone's wrist or anything. Yeah. And that's... But someone... Where did I read? Some some female performer w- did it and then stopped doing it because people were, like... Groping her. Groping her, yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. I don't know. They would have fucked up... <laughs> I don't know. What a strange world. It's a strange world. So what what other what are your interactions like with fans? You have um Well, 
funny on that on that note. Mostly people are pretty respectful. Definitely was is one of the hazards of talking about sex as much as I do. Like for a while I was avoiding the topic because I was afraid of you know what it would mean for my fan base right. and other people would be creepy and most people are not creepy. Most people are real respectful about it. To me the line is just that the the amount of personal information that I want to share, I share through my songs mm. and my writing. Right. And so the thing that crop that strikes me as creepy or disrespectful is when people ask me real personal questions mm. in person. But I understand that that's a little confusing for people. Yeah. Like where the line is, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so, I know what you mean. It's... But then also, you know, people Facebook is just an evil and horrible invention for the most part and so every once in a while I'll get some creepy comment about my boobs or something on my Facebook page and whatever. <laughs> I can deal. About your boobs? Yeah. Did you play topless? That just happened. No. There, I, I posted a picture of myself. I, post, I posted a picture of a poster of me because someone in one of the clubs we played had drawn a mustache on it. Oh, so yeah. I saw that. Yeah. And somebody commented, your boobs are uneven in this picture. Some dude. And I was just like... <laughs> Thanks for the information. Yeah, yeah that's really great. Glad you, you pointed that out. That was important. I'm impressed by your your attention to detail. <laughs> yeah. Send me your number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that it's... kind of stuff happens like once a week or so, or I'll get some creepy email from somebody and I just block them. But nobody's been creepy with me at the shows. In fact, quite the opposite. I almost never get hit on at my shows. I think because I'm terrifying. You're very intimidating. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Actually, I just did a podcast with a, a couple of female comedians, and they said the same thing. That you're intimidating? No, they don't ever get hit on at their shows. Oh. Uh, are they hot? They were hot, yeah. Really? Yeah. I'll hit on them. <laughs> I'll tell them. <laughs> yeah. No, I've never understood the like the the whole thing about men being afraid of women who are you know too smart or too tall or whatever that's good good for you it's a thing yeah I don't get it or too beautiful I I love that you know like the fashion models like oh men don't hit on me I I scare them like are you kidding (laughs) take a shot at least yeah who gives a shit (laughs) yeah Yeah. no I I spent so much time with models yeah do you really I did I lived in a mansion where everyone in the mansion, it was a mansion that had been turned into studio apartments, and everyone who lived there was a model except me. Wow. I lived there three years. Did you get a lot of play? Uh, I did, but not with anyone who lived there. Oh. Yeah, but it was a great place to take but women home to. But not you didn't hit on them. I didn't hit on, on them because they were irritating. Yeah. <laughs> That's a legitimate reason. Yeah. <laughs> person. No, my, you know, my sense of the ideal woman is as low maintenance as possible yeah you know if women were cars i'd want like a toyota pickup (laughs) you know i'm not to keep your maserati i have no patience for it yeah i'm kind of with that so yeah yeah you know it's partly generational i think we talked about this on the last podcast i think that my, my generation of men men who are in their 20s ish right now we have a real crisis on our hands there's just a lot of... Because they're all pussies? Yeah. 
They're afraid of they're afraid of offending women to a huge degree. And, and you know, well, as you know, I live in Spain, right? Yeah. Twenty some years. Come back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. First thing I notice is this culture of offense. Yeah, everybody's fucking offended. I know. Everybody's angry. Yep. Everybody's looking for something to be pissed off about. Yeah, it's such bullshit. Yeah, you know, and I think it's it's you know directly related to what you're saying about. Sexual relationships. Yeah. And there was this case a few months ago. I don't know if you heard the podcast I did with Dan Savage. Well, he was on my podcast. No, it, was, I didn't it was maybe six months ago or mm-hmm. something. Um, and at the time, I remember talking to him about this case that was happening then. It was a, a guy who um, was an editor of Scientific American blogs. And he, I think he was in his 40s. And he had been extremely supportive of young writers bringing them up men and women mm-hmm. um he was like everybody loved this guy he you know had made dozens of careers yeah. for for scientific writers and what happened was that a woman who had worked with him wrote a blog not naming him by name but describing how a man that she Respected and who had been very helpful in the development of her career had said something after a meeting or a dinner or something that had lingered in her mind and she wasn't sure, but it sort of felt like maybe he was coming on to her because he said something about like, maybe we could talk about this back in my room if you'd like to have a drink. And, And she said no, and he never mentioned it again, and he continued to support her, but... All these years later, it still lingered and still bothered her. And so she publishes this blog and some other woman read it. And she's, the other woman was like, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about so-and-so. Yeah, I'm talking about. Oh, well, then they published his name because he'd done it to both of them. Wow. So then it became this big deal. Like and he I th- invited them for a drink? Yeah. That was the whole scandal? Right. And so then it became like, and the women actually said in their blog piece, I don't, he never said anything inappropriate, clearly inappropriate to me. I don't even know with 100% certainty that he was coming on to me, but he made me feel bad. They don't like his vibe. Years later, they don't like his vibe. Jeez. And he continued to be helpful in their careers. There was no retribution. There was no, nothing, right? Yeah. The fucking guy lost his job. Ugh. And probably his marriage. Yeah. For what? Yeah. So I said this to Dan. I was losing my mind that, yeah. you know, and I, I laid it out to Dan. And Dan was like, well, I thought Dan was going to like completely support, you know, my position that mm-hmm. that was ridiculous. And instead, what he said was, look, in America, you cannot say anything the least bit um, sexual to someone you work with. Yeah. And you can't even do it in bars. Yeah. So it's all online now. Yep. Like, that's the only place it's appropriate. Our our lust to the darkest, most secretive place. (laughs) Or or the most sterile, non-real, bloodless, juiceless, you know, juju-less place. It's ridiculous. I I have mixed feelings about stuff like this because... I consider myself a feminist. I want women to feel safe. I want women to feel empowered. I want right. men to be respectful of women. But I also, if I had my druthers, I would prefer not that men be more careful, but that women be more assertive. 
And I think right. they, they respond to the same issue. But I think we've spent a lot more cultural energy on telling men that they need to like rein in their sexual desire and not be careful and be careful with it and you know make sure they're not showing it to anyone that doesn't want it and make sure they read all the subtle signals and all that and i think yeah. that's a waste of energy for the most part i think that we've yeah. gotten some good things from it uh-huh. there have been some good outcomes of that part of the feminist movement but i think we've spent much less energy on you know basically assertiveness training telling young women that they're allowed to say what they like and don't like what they want and don't want right and to say it in a loud voice right direct terminology <laughs> you right. know what i mean i think we now just have a whole generation of men and women who are all pussies yeah <laughs> so instead of like creating yeah. women who get to feel safe now we've just created everyone's equally scared of each other right you know? well some people would be offended that you use, use the word pussies there i, I said that I was I was at a party and I said something. I was talking about Ted and yeah. I said, "Wouldn't Ted be great if it weren't run by pussies?" And somebody said, "Well, how does everyone else feel about Chris using the word pussies there?" And I was, "Oh, here yeah. we go. Yeah. Here we fucking go." Yeah. Hey, what you know, like, but conversely, if somebody had said, "If it weren't run by a bunch of dicks," nobody would have said. Uh, like, that. yeah, like, well, and that's how privilege works. The underprivileged minority gets. Has to be protected. Oh, please. I'm just saying, there is something to that. There's something to that. You're Look, allowed I, to say anything you want right. against the privileged majority. And who decides who's privileged? Power. Being underprivileged gives you so much fucking power in this society now. That's why everyone's oh, lining God. up to be offended. Because oh, it's a play God. for power. Of course it is. There's something to that. Everybody wants to get hurt so they can sue and never have to work again. I right? Know what you mean. Psychologically, it's the same fucking thing. I know you mean, but that's a very white dude argument. It's an argument made by a white dude who's lived all over the world in lots of different cultures. Well, that's fine. Uh huh. And yet, and by the way, by the way, excuse me, I'm not a white dude. I'm Irish, (laughs) and I'm only partly joking. Okay. Eighty thousand Irish women and children were sold in the slave markets of the West Indies. Mm -hmm. That's why Bob Marley talks with an Irish brogue, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's where that comes from. There's Irish pagan ritual built into voodoo that came through those slave markets mm-hmm. in up until the late 19th century a lot of places were closed to blacks and irish mm-hmm. jobs bars all sorts of places right now i'm not saying anyone should be paying me reparations but i am saying that talking about white people is kind of like talking about drugs mm-hmm. or no, black people or whatever it's like and i'm using the shorthand yeah what i'm trying to say is there is a kind of privilege you get from speaking out about being a minority because people need to be careful with you you might get to sue and all that stuff but there's a different kind of privilege you get by being in the position that is culturally currently holds the most power yeah so in america white men have more power than people of color and than women and by power i mean mostly money and access to resources right but see there are different ways of looking at that and and this is this is something that i think as a culture we need to learn to understand that you know, like you could say, I don't know what neighborhood Bill Gates lives in, in Seattle, around Lake, whatever it is. Uh, that's the richest neighborhood in the United States, mm-hmm. right? But there could be people living in that neighborhood who are not at all rich. It's mm-hmm. just that when you add Bill Gates's money in and then average it out, it's the you know highest per capita income anywhere, right? Yeah. So when people say, oh, white men have all the money, 
all the money is controlled by white men, but not all white men have money. Yeah. And in fact, because of the extreme concentration of wealth and power and privilege and all the rest of it in this country right most now, white most white men are fucked. Yeah. Right? Just like most black people are fucked. And most, you know, everybody's fucked. So what we do when we structure our our thought processes these ways mm-hmm. and say you're a white man therefore you're privileged mm-hmm. is we take most white men and put them in an even deeper hole than they're already in because not only are they fucked there're no jobs for they're most white men but they're not even allowed to say they're fucked yeah i see what you, mean. you know so it's like oh at least if you're black you can say hey fuck you whitey you know right. you you <laughs> enslaved my ancestors you're just an out of work white dude. Who? What can you say? Mm-hmm. Nothing. You know, go home and listen to Bruce Springsteen and shoot yourself. Yeah. That's pretty much all you got. <laughs> I get it. I so, get it. so what I'm saying is, you know, maybe I sound like Rush Limbaugh or something, but it seems to me like it's the the you know the hygiene hypothesis. Mm-hmm. In so the the idea for people who don't know it is that kids aren't exposed to enough pathogens and therefore their immune systems don't develop. And that's that's why we've got all these allergies and all these autoimmune disorders and all that because kids don't play in the dirt anymore, right? And they don't fall and hurt themselves. So they never, kids don't ever touch knives. Oh, don't touch the knife. So then they don't figure out that knives are dangerous. So by the time they actually touch a knife, then they can really hurt themselves. So a lot of stuff, it's better to be exposed, like skiing. Mm -hmm. It's better to start skiing when you're a little fucking kid. You fall over, you fell a foot. Who cares? You're not going to get hurt, right? (laughs) Right. You start skiing when you're in your 50s, you're going to break your knees. No question. So it's like that in in so many things in life. And I feel like in America, it's always, the response is always to remove the danger. Mm -hmm. It's never to incorporate the presence of the danger into your sense of balance. Right. Mm -hmm. Acknowledge it. Some guys are assholes. Yeah. But as you said, learn to talk to assholes. Right. Learn to say, fuck you, asshole. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, no, I don't want that in my ass. Right. I mean, (laughs) learn to say that, you know, as opposed to three weeks later, you know, file a rape complaint Mm -hmm. because you had sex in a way you didn't want to. And but nobody knew because you don't know how to say you didn't want to. Yeah. And so now you've got, you know, universities in the U.S. where undergrads actually have to sign a written release yeah. before they have sex warnings and all that stuff it's all related. come on i know i mean i'm i agree with you i do think that another thing we haven't spent much time on is acknowledging privilege as a privileged person and i think that it's actually something i really like about new orleans and the way race works in new orleans is that there's constant acknowledgement of race from people of many races. And right. I feel like it's something that would freak out your average New Yorker because there's constantly people saying, like, my neighbors will be like, wow, oh, these white people bought the school and now the school sucks or whatever. They'll, you know, they'll talk about white people in a, and they'll talk about black people and they'll talk about Mexican people or whatever it is, but it's not in a derogatory way necessarily. It's to acknowledge the color of the person who they're currently discussing. It's like, it feels like they're, they're, bringing to the forefront something that's normally supposed to be an undercurrent. And to me, that feels more like you're able to, to wrestle with it a little bit better if it's at least being acknowledged. You know what I mean? So I feel like the, the New Orleans approach is to just say everything like it is up front about right. race. Right. And then at least it's in the open. Yeah. You know, like when we first moved to the neighborhood, there was a second line parade and I like went out of my house. And some, one of the neighbors came up kind of at the tail end of the parade and they said like, you know... 
all these white people are moving in, and at first I was kind of mad about it, but now I'm just, I'm really glad you guys are here. I'm glad you're out here in the parade, and I want you to understand how we do things. You know what I mean? Where it's sort of a, a direct acknowledgement that the culture is changing, and that the race relations are changing, and they want to engage with it rather than, you know, hide it or avoid it or be bitter about it or whatever it is. Yeah, but see, the problem with that is that the guy who says, hey, all these white people are moving in, he's making assumptions about what white people are. Yeah. You've got money because you're white, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't know you grew up on some farm and didn't go to school and trying to make it as a musician or whatever, right? Yeah. You know, like, because in his mind, you're a white person. Mm-hmm. Cassie and I were in a Denny's. I've told the story a couple of times um, in the past, but Cassie and I were in a Denny's in it was Crescent City, California. It's a little town on the coast, Northern California. And this woman at the table next to us started chatting with Cassie. Where are you from? You know, because she's all exotic looking. And she said, Mozambique. And the woman said, where's Mozambique? Oh, it's in Africa, down near South Africa. Uh, and there was this long pause. And she said, so is everyone there African-American? <laughs> <laughs> Right? right, so she's trying not to offend, yeah. right? What she was asking is, everyone there black? But yeah. in her mind, black is African American because you can't say black right. because black, you know, now that's changed. It yeah. used to be colored, now it's black, and then it's African American now. And but I mean, to me, that that sort of exemplifies the absurdity that the lengths that we go to mm-hmm. to try not to offend people, and we end up just creating more confusion. Yeah, I agree. But to speak to the thing about generalizing. I think that f- from a intellectual sort of spiritual assessment, it would definitely be preferable if everybody took the time to understand who you actually are and where you're coming from and how much money you have and what level of privilege they're actually dealing with. But I think the nature of human relationships is that Nobody we're all generalizing. Time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. And so I feel like I'm being... I know that a lot of the people in my neighborhood look at me and make assumptions about who I am, and I consider it my sort of burden. The burden's on me as the perceived privileged person right. to make sure that they understand who I am in a more right. complex way, rather so, than to just avoid the whole issue, right. in which case they get to maintain their wrong assumptions about me. You know what I mean? So on it, it, applying this sort of thinking to <clears throat> male-female interactions, yeah. who's privileged in the male-female interactions? Well, there's different. There's lots of different kinds of privilege. It's not. It's not a pat answer. But mm-hmm. I would say that there is. There's one kind of ultimate privilege, which is that most men can physically overpower most women. And I'm not. You know, yeah. I'm not like an anti-sexual harassment activist, and I'm not particularly afraid of being, you know, sexually assaulted. But I will say that there's that one dynamic is kind of at the bottom of yeah. a lot of relations between men and women. It doesn't get acknowledged very much because it's. It's annoying, you know. It's not. Oh, nobody's you think it doesn't get acknowledged very much? I think well, it gets okay. acknowledged fucking constantly. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. So also, yeah, here's what I think isn't other, acknowledged very much. There's lots of other cultural and emotional dynamics right. that are layered on top of that. But sure. I will say that's the one that doesn't change. Like I'm, I'm five foot two. It's one of the ones pounds, that doesn't change. And like most men could could hurt me or rape me. Yeah, but you to. could also have a knife in your pocket or a gun or could, you know a husband coming around the corner you know and there i mean i'm well, not okay. i'm not minimizing it so it's I true it's true say, yeah. yeah that's a thing yeah definitely a that's thing. a real thing no doubt and i think that's at bottom 
the issue that's that's being played out in all of this, like all of the beating the dead horse of sexual assault and harassment and rape and who's who needs to be careful of who and what the proper approach is and all that. At bottom, the issue is that women feel physically they have the potential to be unsafe and men don't have that same fear. I think there are two issues. Okay. I think that's one of them. Mm-hmm. And the other issue is that all of these interactions are the pivot around the fact that the man wants something that the woman has, mm-hmm. right? So in that sense, she's got privilege, right? Right, Because she's the one who says yes or no. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that she says no is pisses him off and he calls you a slut and whatever, or right. or maybe gets violent or who knows. Right. And so that generates the danger and the imbalance that, that we're talking about mm-hmm. on the other side. But I think it's, this is a, another problem that there's this unacknowledged, mm, what's the word, uh, impotence, actually, you know, that the man's experiencing yeah. that generates rage against women, that yeah. generates self-loathing, the yeah. shame, and, you know, a lot of pathology, I think, that's generated in men, including misogyny. Yeah. A lot of that is generated by the extreme sexual frustration that They're most... Fuckless. Well, they become fuckwits, <laughs> yeah. right? Because they pass through, and I'm speaking from personal experience, and, and most of the men I know that I've spoken to about this, there's a period in teenage years where, you know, there's there's no animal on the planet as horny as a 15-year-old boy, right? right? But there's also no animal that you'd probably be less likely to want to fuck, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, And it's not his fault. He's just like 15-year-old so boys are not attractive, yeah. largely because they're so... You know, Freaked obsessed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Totally. And the, they stink of, yeah. you know, teen spirit. Or- right. Well, and this is why, you know, I said earlier that I think the feminist movement has missed out a little bit on assertiveness training and, and emphasizing the importance of women learning how to say what they want and like and yeah. all that. And I think another element of that is there's a there's an assumption, speaking of generalizing about a privileged class, there's an assumption that women don't want sex and men do want sex. And that sets every male-female pair into this dynamic where the assumption is I want sex from you and I'm not going to get it and so it creates sort of a setting on which this whole dynamic can play out where the man's going to get frustrated and the woman's going to feel afraid and she needs to protect herself and all this stuff and I think that assumption is not founded it's not founded in reality much of the time it's sort of a it's a play that we're all playing out because that's how we've been raised and that's what we think about men and women and whatnot. you know all this better than I do But my point is, I think that another thing that would be helpful for the way men and women relate to each other culturally is for the idea that women want sex as much as men to be proliferated, because I think it would take the edge off that assumption that I have something you want and I'm not going to give it to you. Yeah, but I think women want sex as much as men, but it's contextual. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it will ever... Well... No, okay. It, it, I'm thinking about different cultural contexts. There, there are cultural contexts in which women are almost as casual and easygoing and, yeah, why not, about mm-hmm. sex as men are. Mm-hmm. But in the research I've done, never quite. Hmm. There's always there a, a surplus. There is a biological... 
Yeah. Imperative where women where women are slightly less willing to give it up than men are willing to I give think it. so because I I think that ultimately there is you know there is a very important biological difference. Uh, you know, you can get pregnant, I can't. Right. So you always have to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um y- this is happening inside your body, right. not inside my body. Yeah. If if this were about putting you want to put something in me, then I'd be thinking twice about it. You'd be hesitant. Whereas I'm putting something in you, hey, why not? Yeah. You know, sure, let's go. Right. Um, you know, like like glory holes. Like dudes will stick their dick through a hole in a wall in a truck stop. Like really? You know? Can yeah. you imagine women who'd be like, yeah, I don't give a shit. Just stick something in me. Yeah. I don't I don't care what it is or who it's attached to. It, right. it just doesn't seem like something a woman would do. Right. You know, just and and I'm sure a lot of it does come down to just basic biology. You know, it's like infection. Yes, I'm going to get infected. Right. You know, whereas the guy's like, yeah, probably not. I'll wash right, it off right, after. Right, right. You know, so there, so there's all that stuff. But then I think there are contexts like within marriages, within relationships, where often and also at age different. You know, different parts of a person's life where it's typical that the woman would be wanting more sex than the man. Right. You know, and so that's the sort of unspoken right. uh, plague of se- female sexual frustration in Western societies. Yeah. You know, married women, like the guys, you know, watching porn or right. whatever, just not into it anymore. It's a Shades of Grey phenomenon. I haven't read it. How was I haven't it? read it either. Oh, sure. Oh, oh. Uh, American women are all oh, know, yeah. into that book for yeah. the last seven Good for years because they're fuckwits. They're sexual pleasure. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Is <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I, I agree with you that, you know, uh, you know, if you don't look at specifics, there yeah. is as much female sexual desire on the planet as there is male. Mm-hmm. But they express in different ways sure. in different places. I think you'd say the same about, you know, black people and white people or whatever it is. I think I think that's the problem with generalization. And, you know, we're going to do it either way. And probably more of the time than not, it's going to have some truth to it. You know, women don't want sex as much as men. Maybe that's somewhat true over the the broad spectrum of humanity. But ultimately, you have to know the story behind each person. But I do think that 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 dynamic, that assumption that men want sex and women don't, it contributes to a lot of uh, unfortunate outcomes, including stuff like sexual assault. Where it's like men feel like they're in a position where they couldn't possibly get sex no matter how, you know, good or nice or attractive they are because women just don't want to give it up. You know what I mean? And I think that creates a level of, of frustration that's that's dangerous. <laughs> well, I think I think we've culturally we've put women in a position where one of the only forms of power they have is by leveraging their sexuality and then we blame them for doing that right and call them frigid bitches or gold diggers or whatever but you know if the only way your children are going to survive is that you marry a guy who's got some money then that's probably what you're going to do you know so i think Definitely what we need to do is make sure women have access to what they need straight up. Right. Child care, health care, jobs. And then we'll know more about sexual desire. And then we'll see. <laughs> gender exactly. Yeah. Right. And that's why we studied hunter-gatherers, yeah. right, where women have pretty high status and yeah. 
and power and autonomy and all that and that's where you find that in a lot of those societies they're like hey yeah let's have right. let's do it who cares because if i get pregnant we're all going to take care of the baby right. so, so i don't have risk? to worry about yeah. who's the daddy you yeah. know that's not an issue yeah. so yeah i i think in that situation you get much more female libido yeah. um being openly expressed and well, much less male sexual frustration as a yeah, result. Yeah. yeah, and I wonder if we're headed that way culturally as women get more and more access to resources. I feel like I, yeah. I see more female libido being expressed than mm. you know when I look back at even just the writing and the art that was being created right. 50 years ago was much more Pisses me off, let me tell you. I missed the 60s. I was too young for the 60s, and now I'm too old for this party. <laughs> I mean, like, all these, I've got friends who are on, uh, what's it called, uh, uh, not grinder the the one for oh, Tinder Tinder <laughs> and then, uh, he's like oh yeah I, you know I flew to Chicago last week I met this chick and he shows me a picture of her naked like right. what <laughs> like you just like you just like swiped and twenty minutes later you took that picture like what how come this world doesn't exist for me yeah. oh, I just missed it I just like landed right between it. the two come parties on. well. I'm not going to go on Tinder. Like, hey, yeah, I'm an author. <laughs> I don't, I don't I'm even. Sure you do, all right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, listen. I know you've got a gig. You probably have to I like go have have and go like in. get a massage and get your nails yeah, done and some girly stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. it's my life. <laughs> a lot of glamour. Get a foot massage. Yeah. My makeup did. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks for doing this. It's yeah. always great to, to hang with you. And uh, tell people, like, you're you're going from here to Seattle, and then the tour continues? Yeah, we go on through the Midwest. We'll be in Minneapolis, Chicago, Cleveland. We're playing, like, 25 more cities. You know what? I'll put this... Uh, I've got some others in the can, but I'll put this up right away so that awesome. people can check you out. It might actually do some good. So different. if you're listening to this, uh, what is it? It's the end of June. So this will go out Monday or Tuesday. Nice. So you'll be in Seattle. They will have already missed you in Seattle, but... We'll be in the Midwest. And the Midwest. We'll, we'll be in New York, Philly, D.C., Boston, all uh, in the middle and end of July. Wow. So July like 15th through 20th will be the big shows in the Northeast. All right. Yeah, Beautiful. and you can find it all on the website. It's carsieblanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E Blanton. B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. Beautiful. <laughs> and I'll put some links up on, on the website as well. Thanks, Carsey. Thanks for having me. And now Carsey will play us out. Oh. No, you don't have to play us out live. I mean, because <laughs> oh, you always play us out with Smoke Alarm. <laughs> right. So, and as all as I always should say, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the theme song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.